going through the book of Romans, which is the longest explanation of the gospel, the good news that there is in the Bible. And the fascinating thing about it is it's written to people who Paul says back in chapter 1 are literally world famous for their faith. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul said that to the Romans that your faith is being reported all over the world. And then he goes on to give them the longest, most detailed explanation of why the good news is actually good news that we have in the whole Bible. And chapters 1 through 5 are really about what God has done for us in the gospel. What has God done for us? Well, in spite of the fact that we had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God sent His only begotten Son to live and die in the place of sinners, to take their place uh, at, at the cross so that we might be reconciled to Him. So that we who were His enemies might be made His friends. And as the story goes on, we're going to see in chapter 8, it's even greater than that. Because he doesn't just make us his friends, he brings us to his very family and makes us his adopted sons and daughters. And that's what I'm going to talk about on Friday. So come learn about the doctrine of adoption. Um, But now chapter 6, Paul starts to talk about what God does to us in the gospel. Now this is important for you to understand. Last week in chapter 5, we talked about how in Adam... All men, all mankind sinned, and therefore all died. And we talked about this idea about how Adam represents all mankind. And then as well in the gospel, Jesus represents all of his people. And so what you need to understand is that Adam gives us two things. There are two things that we get from Adam. In one case, we get Guilt. Romans 5, it's inescapable. At least if, if you believe the Bible. That Paul says that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. He doesn't just say that because Adam sinned, we all will inve- inevitably follow his example. No, he says that his sin counts for us. Just as Jesus' one act of righteousness can count for us as well. So from Adam we get guilt. And guilt is dealt with by justification by faith. Justification means you're no longer guilty. But you're not just wiped clean. You actually are judged or regarded by God as somebody who is beautiful in His sight. Like someone who has done everything that He's ever asked or dreamed about. Can you imagine what it's like? For God to look at you as someone who's done everything he asked? That's what justification by faith teaches. That you are now justified. Not just had your slate wiped clean so that you're no longer guilty, but you've actually been made righteous in his sight because Jesus lived and died in your place. And I quoted, uh, I think, several times so far this semester, and I'll quote it again, this hymn by Horatius Bonar, Upon a death I did not die, Upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. That's Christianity. That's justification by faith, and it deals with our guilt. But we get something else from Adam. We also get corruption. Or you might think of it as we also get screwed up. We have the wrong 
desires. Our hearts are filled with a commitment to take care of ourselves, no matter how it hurts other people or hurts God. We are screwed up. But God doesn't just justify us and leave us screwed up. That's what Romans 6 is about. What God does to us. Justification is about what God does for us in Christ. But sanctification is what we get into now here in chapter 6. What is God doing to us to deal with our screwed upness and to make us actually in our heart of hearts like Jesus? So let's read chapter 6 of Romans. We actually will not read the whole chapter because we're going to do another teaching on Romans chapter 6 next week. So, start at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we certainly also will be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. We'll stop there because we're going to um, pick up some of that ending part even of what I read next week. But it was important to read a little past verse 11 tonight to give you a little context to where the argument is going. Let's pray together and then we will seek to understand what God has for us here. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us understand this crucial passage. What is it that's got Paul so fired up? Help us to understand it. It's obviously important. Help us to see it. Help us to see Jesus here, even in this passage, and what difference the gospel makes to how we live and deal with our slavery. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's interesting. Different people, different groups of people, different generations have different things that are probably 
their greatest struggle or their greatest fear. If you're from a more traditional culture, say from a, maybe um, not from America, but from overseas in a more traditional culture, or perhaps your grandparents lived in a more traditional way of looking at the world, the greatest fear of more traditional people is that they would be found guilty. But your generation, in a lot of ways, guilt just sort of, sort of rolls off. It's much more concerning to you that you would be found enslaved to something and thus unable to reach your full potential. Now it's interesting, in between, sort of your, your parents in a lot of ways um, have more of a concern about being, well, maybe it's a little older than your parents because you guys are young. But the people that are sort of more, the sort of kind of modern generation are more people who are concerned with being inefficient and not sort of being able to do a lot of things. Your generation wants to be free. And, you know, what, when you come to the Bible, you find it's interesting. There are different, different aspects to those three different things. Being, uh, being guilty, being inefficient or ineffective, and being enslaved. The Bible addresses all those things. Chapter 5, where it talks about justification and what you do with your guilt, is not necessarily the thing that's going to grab people in your generation first and foremost. It's true and you need to understand what to do with your guilt. Because guilt in the Bible is real. Real. God is real. And He has made us to live in a certain way. And He requires that we honor Him, the one who made us, by living the way He calls us to live. And if you're not living that way, you are guilty. But here's the thing. Chapter 6, in a lot of ways, I think is is something that resonates with you probably more easily, particularly if you haven't, been gro- you haven't grown up in a Christian environment or a Christian family. I mean, if you grew up in a Christian family, you're used to hearing about how you're guilty. Okay? But for, for most people, the idea... I don't, in other words, I may have to argue with you to convince you that you're guilty before God. It's not something that you just automatically accept. Okay? Uh, but I probably don't have to argue with you that you're screwed up. I don't. You know it, and you know it's true about your friends. You know that there are competing desires warring within you. That you, you want to be different than you are, and you find that you're not able to do it. And so when Paul talks in this chapter about feeling like you're enslaved to sin... It resonates with you. You understand that you're not just somebody who occasionally screws up or, 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 or has an error here or there. You recognize that in so many ways, you never live up to what you wish you could be. I don't either. I was thinking about, about that today as I yelled at my kid for, you know, how many times. Like, some, some ways I don't, even, I don't even try and fight against it because I, I, I just feel like, of course I'm going to lose my temper and yell at my kids. Right? And it, it's like, of course, I'm enslaved to it. The feeling, like, I, it just sort of struck me today, like I feel enslaved to that anger and that frustration when they do things that upset my comfort and my comfortable little world that I'm trying to create. And when they do something to upset it, I get angry, I try to control them and get everything back in place. 
and it feels like I'm enslaved to it. So at one level, I read this passage, and I resonate with when Paul says that, I'm, that we're enslaved. But then the other thing is crazy is he's saying, well, if you're a Christian and you're in Christ, though you may feel enslaved, you actually aren't. And you go, really? Okay, well, Paul, explain to me how that happens, how that can be true. And that's the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight. But before he gets into that, there's a little continuing thought from last week that we need to deal with because it's really important to understand. You remember last week we talked about how if you're a Christian, it's because God the Father agreed with God the Son before Jesus took on flesh and came here that Jesus would come and live and die in the place of sinners. And that you're either in Adam, either Adam represents you, or Christ represents you. And the heart of the gospel is that God called you, considered you, brought you into union with Christ, so that when He died at the cross, you died. And when He was resurrected, you were resurrected. And the invitation of the gospel is for you and for me to take Christ. And when I take Christ, I take death and I take life. So that it's true that I can regard myself as someone who has died. And all the things that would sit in judgment about me, when the law says that if you don't obey God perfectly from the heart, which it does say, then you deserve to die, the way I answer that is to say, really? Well, God, come on. Cut me a break here. No, I don't answer that. If I have been saved by Jesus, the way I answer that is, well, I've already died. You're right, I deserve death. But I already died at a cross 2,000 years ago because God put me in union with Christ in His death. And not only that, I'm not the same person anymore because I've been raised with Jesus and I'm alive because He's alive. Even when I feel like death. And I feel like death is the only thing at work in my heart. I'm alive. Now, what Paul goes on to say in chapter 5 is that's not something you do to yourself. It's not something you make happen by doing the right things to make God love you. It's not even something you make happen by your faith, which somehow unlocks this, this thing and makes it come to you. It's something that happens to you. And I, I talked about how Paul brings this up over in Ephesians 2 as well. He says that you're dead in your sins and trespasses, but God who is rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ, in union with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. This not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. In other words, if you ask Paul, the Apostle Paul, what is, what is grace? He would say it's God making dead people alive again. Now, Paul, in answer to that, says this in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. If all that's true, he anticipates an objection. You might even be sitting here tonight thinking this objection. Well, Kevin, if what you're saying and what you're saying that the Bible is saying is that my status, whether I'm in Christ or not, is not based on what I do, but based upon what God does... Well then, why wouldn't I just say, great, and go out and live however I want to live? If I've already died, and therefore my death that I deserve because of my sin has already been 
died, then what's to keep me from living like a hellion and doing whatever I want? Right? Have you th wondered that? I know that if you grew up as a Christian, you've wondered that. Because this is the question that Pharisees and older brothers always want to know. How come these other people can get away with living these lives like this? And if I'm really saved by grace and it really covers me and there's really nothing I can do to make God change his mind about me because I've already died and I've already been made alive, I've already died, I've already been resurrected, it's too late. If you're in Christ, God has already judged you. There's no future judgment coming where he's going to look at you and say, well, you just really didn't measure up. Sorry, didn't make it this time. If you're a Christian, your judgment happened at the cross. Okay, if all that's true, it seems to eliminate the primary motivation most people would think drives living a holy life. And Paul says, what shall we say then? If all that's true, then what is there to stop people from just going on and sinning and sinning and sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, if the more you sin, you can't possibly outsin grace, what's to stop you from sinning more and more and more and sort of having the best of both worlds? I get to sin and I get forgiven. What a great deal. Doesn't it seem like a great deal? I won't make you answer that, because what Paul says, if you answer it and say, yeah, that seems like a great deal, he says, you don't know the first thing about the gospel or relationship with God. Look at this. He raises the objection that a lot of religious people in particular have, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? But he doesn't even answer it. He doesn't even regard it as worthy of an answer. Instead, he just sort of snorts at it and says, by no means, or as the old King James says, God forbid. In other words, that's such an insane question. What are you doing even asking it? And you go, well, it seems like a logical question. Paul, why are you so mad at me? <laughs> right? Doesn't it? Right? Because you're all thinking it. Right? But here's what Paul's saying. If you think that way, you're thinking according to the world's logic. And the gospel comes in and introduces a completely different um, economy and a completely different way of thinking. And it goes like this. Fear is a sub-Christian motivation. Oh, you may get your life in order in certain ways by convincing yourself that you need to be afraid of the consequences if you don't. You may even get your kids to obey, at least externally, by fear of a spanking or getting yelled at or whatever. But you'll never, you'll never have real heart-level change from fear. The gospel comes in and eliminates the basis for fear. If you are a Christian, there is nothing you have to fear from God, no matter how you live. Chapter 8 is going to say it as plainly as it can be said. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, what you need to understand here is... If you've died to sin, how can you live it any longer? What he's saying is, don't you understand? The only reason you would ask that question is because you don't understand that once you become a Christian, it's not just that you get forgiven. 
everything changes. This is, there's a, there's a, a huge thing you can't begin to understand here. Everything changes. You've died to sin. You can't live in it any longer. In other words, if your attitude is one of wanting to just use God, that shows that you don't really understand the gospel and it's never penetrated your heart. If your attitude is, how can I get away with murder, but still go on murdering? How can I get away with stealing God's glory and yet never have to quit stealing God's glory? You may have good reason to question whether you really are a Christian. Because Christians are not just people who are forgiven. Christians are people who've died and been resurrected. And, and you have to think differently about this question. The problem with the way most people frame this question, Paul's saying, is they're still thinking like... The way you relate to God is through fear. And the only motivation you could ever have for wanting to live holy life is because you're afraid God will zap you if you don't. And Paul says that has never been the motivation for living a godly life. Because it doesn't really work. If the only reason you're doing quote-unquote Christian things is because you're afraid of God, it's not really Christian. Paul in chapter 14 of Romans will say it this way, whatever is not of faith is sin. It's not enough to do the right things. Are you doing them for the right reason? And the only way that your reason for doing things can change is if God's death on the cross in the person of Jesus has broken your heart and changed your whole attitude towards sin. So that you don't regard it as something that you can get away with. You regard it as something that killed your precious Jesus. So that's why he's, he's really offended by the question. Because if what you're asking is, how can I be a Christian and get the benefits of Christianity, like forgiveness and peace, and yet still live like a, like a hellion? He says, he's offended. He says, don't you understand? Sin crucified my Jesus. How can, you, how can you want to live in that? Who would want to live in that? And if you're a Christian, that has to resonate with you at some level. But, as he goes on, he obviously has to talk to us about what's been made true of us because it's not easy to believe. Like, I really am serious. When I, when I was thinking today, I feel so much of the time like I'm still enslaved to sin. And Christians feel that way. I know it because Paul has to address it in chapter 6, and I know it because of what he says in chapter 7, where he says that I feel like I'm crazy, is what he basically says, rough paraphrase, my little paraphrase. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. I feel like I'm, I'm just this crazy person all the time. So if you feel that way, you're in good company. Well, let's, let's dig into this. Let's dig into this. Well, let me just say one more thing about, about chapters 1 and 2. Here's the thing. If, if when you hear the gospel of grace preached or proclaimed, if it doesn't make you a little nervous that it's too good to be true, it's probably not really the gospel of grace. In other words... When you hear the gospel, it should make you think, gosh, you know what? Don't, don't say that around, around sinners. Like if sinners hear that, 
they're not going to want to change. They're just going to want to accept it and keep living. If you're not a little bit nervous because grace seems too good to be true and doesn't require anything of us at all, and therefore people could abuse it, it's not really grace. Do you understand what he's saying? When Paul preaches the gospel, he expects people to be nervous and say, Paul, that sounds like so free and it makes it sound like people don't have to do anything at all. Don't say that. If, if you don't think about the gospel as that gospel is so good that it could easily be abused, it's probably not the gospel. And I would tell you, I think that one of the chief issues that Christians struggle with is they don't believe the gospel is really as good as it is. Because they think that I, I, need, to, I need to sort of do something to kind of pay God back. I, it's just not fair that he does all the dying and I do all the living. And so it seems like I've got, to, I've got to sort of pay it back. I can't really accept that grace is completely free. I have to do something, even if it's just feel bad about my sin for a while before I accept it. I've got to do something. I can't just accept it that God looks at me as he looks at Jesus because I haven't done anything for it. I can't just, I can't, ugh, I can't handle that. If, if that. if that freeness of the gospel doesn't make you uncomfortable, you may question whether you really get the gospel. Because Paul expects you to be nervous with how good the good news is. Alright, so what does it mean that we've died to sin? It's a huge concept, an important one, and Paul spends a lot of time talking about it. It's interesting, like over in Colossians chapter 3, he basically says the same thing as he takes 11 verses to say here. And, and the way he summarizes it over there is he says, you have put off the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in Christ. So here's the essence, and this is what he's saying here. You've died with Christ. But here's the interesting thing. Let me, let me define a word for you. Sanctification. It has the same root as the, the Greek and the Hebrew words that we use for holiness. So sanctified, holy, they're in sort of the same kind of area, okay, linguistically. And it's this idea of being set apart is one of the, the basic meanings of it. It's basically becoming like Jesus on the inside. It's becoming like Jesus. Sanctification is having your sinful nature done away with so that you are pure and holy from the inside. And while most Christians, I think, or people that have even begun to explore Christianity, have picked up on the idea that when you become a Christian, when you uh, enter into a relationship with God and begin to follow Jesus, that's just the beginning. Uh, that's just the beginning. The, that there's um, struggle and growth, sometimes you hear people talk about. What does it mean to grow as a Christian? That means to continually become more like Jesus and less like sin. And that's a process. And everybody, I think, Christians understand that that's a process, okay? But here's what Paul is saying here. Yes, it's a process, but do you understand that generally, most often, when the Bible talks about sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, it uses past tense language more often than present or future tense language. And that's a strange thing. And when you read the Bible carefully, you begin to wonder, well, why is that? Because I'm not sanctified yet. But yet, most of the time the New Testament uses that word, it says that it's past tense. It says that Christians are sanctified. And you think, but I'm not. I've still got sin in me. How do I understand this? 
And Romans 6 is one of the keys to understanding what's going on here. And here's what's going on. Sanctification, God's dealing with your screwed upness, begins with a huge, definitive work of God. What is that work? That work is your identity as a slave to sin has been crucified. In other words, it's not just when you become a Christian that God begins this incremental little work, which you can't really even begin to see until you've been a Christian for years and years and years and years and years. No, the beginning of the Christian life, you are justified, you are made acceptable in God's sight and seen as righteous, but you also are sanctified. It doesn't mean that you are without sin, but it means that something definitive that can be regarded as past tense has happened. And when you look at it here, you see it. You've died with Christ. You've, you, your old self, look at verse 6, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. But here's the interesting thing, right? He, down in verse 11, he says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. And verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So there's this combination of him telling you, you've been crucified. Your, your, old, your old self has been crucified. And that's not, like the language, like nobody gets off a cross. Like Paul couldn't have used stronger language in the first century to say, you've died. He doesn't mean that God has, has started working on your heart and melting it a little bit. No, something definitive happened. To say you've been crucified means that you're dead. Not that you just like, have experienced a little tweak or a little adjustment. Okay? But then he goes on and says, he makes all these exhortations which seem to imply that you still have sin in you that needs to be fought with. And so here's the way to understand it. Your identity as a slave to sin has been completely destroyed. You are no longer a slave to sin if you are a Christian. Yet, the presence of sin is very much still at work in you. And so here's the thing to understand. Your screwed upness has been dealt a death blow. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, you have put off the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. Now here's where Christians, I think, get screwed up. One of two ways. They tend to either think that they haven't really died, that there hasn't really been anything definitively done to their screwed upness. They basically walk around and they feel like, well, I'm just the same as I always was. It's just that God looks at me different. I think a lot of Christians, unfortunately, misunderstand sanctification and think that I haven't changed, really, but God just looks at me different because Jesus lived and died in my place. That's not true. That would be Romans 5 without Romans 6. But Romans 6 says it's not just that God looks at you different, though that's true, but you also are different because your old self has been crucified. On the other hand, there are Christians who say, yeah, my old self has been crucified. And therefore, I just need to act like the, the butterfly, this new beautiful creation in Christ that I am. I just, need to, I just need to let go and let God just flow through me. There's no more fight left. 
No more fight. I've cruci- I'm crucified. I just, need to, I just need to accept that. And so there are people who would try to do justice to this past tense language of sanctification in the New Testament, but they don't know what to do with, like, verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. They, don't, uh, they don't really make, can't make sense of why sin is still powerful in us, even though we've been crucified. And, and, and I really think Colossians 3 is, is great the way it puts it together. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed. Your old identity, slave to sin, Kevin Twitt, slave to sin, does not exist. And it's inappropriate for me to think of myself that way. But my new identity is not Kevin Twitt, perfectly sanctified Christian with no sin in my heart at all. No, my new identity is Kevin Twitt, struggling Christian who has to fight against sin. And here's what's interesting. Before Paul gets into how to fight against sin, which is verse 12 and all the rest of this chapter, what does he want us to understand first? He wants you to understand first that you've been crucified. He, it's, in other words, Paul thinks it's important that you understand definitive sanctification, that you have been set free from the dominion of sin before he exhorts you to fight against sin. Do you see that? It's hard to see in some ways because I didn't read all the rest of the chapter. But the whole rest of the chapter is like, don't offer your bodies, your instruments, your body as slaves to wickedness. Right? It's all these exhortations about how you're to live. But that's not how he starts. He starts with, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. See verse 11? What does it mean to count yourself dead to sin? How do you do that? It's sometimes in the King James, I think it says, reckon yourself dead to sin. It's an accounting term. It means to regard yourself as somebody who's dead to sin. What does him saying that show to us? Well, it means, for one thing, that you don't do it automatically. If you did it automatically, then he wouldn't have to tell you to do it. Okay? So, it's hard to do. And he has to exhort you to do it. You don't automatically think of yourself as dead to sin. Why? Because you sin all the time. And so, it takes faith to believe that you've actually been crucified with Christ. Because your experience sometimes screams at you just the opposite. Your experience screams at you, I'm not any different. Nothing's really changed. I'm the same lustful, struggling, addictive person that I've always been. Paul says, no, count yourself dead to sin. It's a fight. It's something that you have to believe by faith. It also, though, shows us that what you believe really matters. What you believe really matters. There's all these fascinating stories about slaves uh, who, after the Civil War, who were legally freed and yet just couldn't seem to get their heart around the idea and still would quake with fear whenever they were around their former master. Some even went back to their masters, even though they'd been freed. And and you might think, well, that's crazy. But you shouldn't think that that's crazy because that's your heart too. You've been set free from the dominion of sin and yet you run back to it all the time. And it's important if you would fight against sin that you believe the right thing. 
that you believe the right thing, that you would understand that you're not a slave to sin. No matter how many times you go back to sin, no matter how many evidences you have that you're a slave to sin, if you're a Christian, you are not a slave to sin, and it's inappropriate for you to regard yourself as one. What you believe really matters. Also, it means that you need to understand what it, this doctrine of sanctification. It's important to understand the doctrine. Like Paul spends verse after verse to get you to understand that if Jesus died, you died. And if Jesus was resurrected, you were resurrected. And that doesn't just count for how God thinks of you. It counts for what's really true about you in your heart. It doesn't just, so it's not like just switching the covers. It actually is affecting you. Your basic core nature has been changed by this death that happened 2,000 years ago. Now, it's not something sometimes you can always feel. So he says, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It's a doctrine that has to be taught. So Paul teaches it in the first half of this chapter before he goes on and gives them practical exhortation for how to live this out. Therefore, what, one of the things that this says is, if you just go trying to fight against sin without understanding that God has delivered you from the dominion of sin, you won't get very far. And here's the great tragedy. So many people, when they become Christians, when they're new Christians, they often have lots of zeal and lots of power. There's sort of this fresh energy. And they, they fight against sin, but they don't often understand that, that they really aren't a slave to sin. And so what happens? They fight against sin until they get beat up enough times that they begin to wonder whether they're a Christian at all. Because they've never really been taught what to expect. They've not been taught that you should expect to feel like a slave, but you should count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Because that's what's true. And it's important for people to understand that because if you don't understand that, you won't be able to fight for long. You won't. Now, underlying all of this chapter is this basic idea. God wants his people to look different and to live different than they did before. So, here, so here's the thing. <laughs> is that going on? And if it's not, why not? Let me show you one more verse, and then we'll, we'll end with this idea. Verse 7 is a fascinating verse. It doesn't necessarily come out so much in the English translations. Paul's here talking all about sanctification and about how God has, has changed our core nature so that we can live differently. But then here he says, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And you might think, well, isn't that mean that we don't have sin in us anymore? But then that can't be true because he goes on and keeps exhorting us like we still have sin that needs to be fought against. So what, do you, what is 7 saying? Here's what's interesting. In the Greek, that word translated freed is the word justified. Like here we are in this whole context talking about sanctification. And all of a sudden that word justified, which was back in chapter 5, is back here again. What does it mean? It means that there is a legal declarative sense in which you are no longer a slave to sin. In other words, 
It would be like the judge saying to you, of course, of course you should be let out of jail. You're, you're, you're not guilty. And you're, and you're not somebody, you're not the same person that you were. That person died. Therefore, you, you don't belong here anymore. Sin can no longer dictate to you how to live. Now this is where I want to get to the heart. Sin dictates to you all the time how you would live. And I don't mean just sin says, hey, do you want some of this? You should, you should have it, you know. It's not like the little, little Satan on your shoulder. What, what I mean is more often the way sin dictates to you is by plunging you into despair and saying you're a miserable piece of crap. How could God ever love you? You've been a Christian how long now? And you still struggle with this? And you need to remember, and you need to preach to your heart, chapter, verse 7, I've been freed from sin. Sin no longer has a right to tell me how to live. He says the same kind of thing in verse 14. For sin shall not be your master. Why? Because you're dead. The one who was under the dominion of sin is dead. And there's no longer any authority. Like one way to get out of being a slave was to die. You know, you read some of these, you read some of these stories about you know, the slaves. I don't know if, or you go up to like Cincinnati and you go to that museum up there, the Underground Railroad Museum, and you read some of these stories about the slaves and about all that they had to get through to escape. And you read some of these stories and it's like, I don't know, you know, I might drown swimming across this river, but at least I won't be a slave. Like one way to be free of slavery is to die. That's what God does. He puts you to death. Later, later actually in chapter 7, he's going to bring this idea up again and say, you're not married to sin anymore. Like one way to be divorced is to die. <laughs> in other words, you were married to Adam. And what he said, you had to do. You're connected to him. But look, you died. So he's, he's kind of, you know, without a, without a wife anymore. And now Jesus raises you up again, and now you can remarry. Because you're a new person. From Jesus' perspective, you've never been married. You've never been married to sin. Because that person has died. And while you have sin powerfully at work in you, it can't dictate to you because it doesn't dominate you. It doesn't, it's not your identity. It's so hard to believe that. That's why there's this great verse in 1 John which says, When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. This is one of the great, the great reasons why being a Christian, it's so important that you don't base everything on your feelings. Because let me tell you, count yourself dead to sin is a call to not obey your feelings. Not saying your feelings don't matter, but they can never be ultimate. And Christians use the truth to fight against their feelings, particularly when their feelings are out of line with reality. And whenever your feelings say that you're a slave to sin and you have no hope of ever getting any better, well, you need to say, I don't, know, I don't know who you're talking to. That person's dead. That person's dead. That person doesn't exist anymore. Oh, there's a person here who still has, 
struggling with sin. It's still powerfully at work in me. But its days are numbered. Because He who made me and who loved me will complete the good work He began. Hallelujah. Right? By faith, we don't just believe what's true about us, but what's true, going to be true about us. Let's pray together.